Has either of you seen the Muji Hut? Huh. Yep. That's amazing. That dream. Taking a Muji Hut, putting it outside, remote area, mountains, and then that's it. I would probably need two of those. Yeah. Sounds pretty <laughs> tiny, right? Yeah, it's only one room. But yeah, two of those would actually make a nice small little getaway. I love that. Yeah, major one for for that one. I've had this dream of having like a little retreat at the end of my garden or in the forest mm. for years. But I've got a tiny garden, but I feel I'm trying to like create this tiny little like place where I can go and write or do things like this. It's not happened yet and I can't fit the Muji one, but it is beautiful. It's really nice. And they even have a bigger like Muji house, I think it's called. Yeah. As a role, so very nice aesthetic. Um, so yeah, as you can hear, we're going to talk about Muji today. So welcome to the DMBA podcast, where we share business confidence with the design community. And this is a business design teardown, which means we, we have a look at the product or company that design community and designers love. And uh, we try to see if it's fancy design only, or is it fancy business as well? And kind of break down the strategy and the playbook of the company. And yeah, today we're tearing down Muji. We are. And talking of fancy businesses and fancy design, I think this company, Muji, is really kind of anti-fancy. They've been known to <laughs> say that they are anti-gorgeous. They're almost like the, yeah. the absolute antithesis of like mass market luxury statement branded goods. So I think they'd be very proud to say, we're definitely not fancy. Um, I know it's not necessarily <laughs> what you true. meant by it, but yeah, this is about as anti-fancy as it gets. So Muji, um, start off with, either of you been to a Muji store before? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm starting to get embarrassed because I'm always the one saying, <laughs> I haven't heard about this company before researching this podcast. <laughs> and it's true for Muji too. Uh, but in my defense, there is no Muji stores in Austria. So it's hard to stumble over one. Yeah, there is isn't one in Vienna? No. No, wow. they haven't really okay. got that many in mainland Europe. They've got, I think, over half are in Japan, which is where this company started and where it thrived and still does. The rest are rest of the world, mostly in the Far East. Um, there's only a handful in the UK now. Um, Alan. Have you managed on your travels to to visit a Muji store? Yeah, so when I lived in Munich, uh, I came across this gorgeous looking storefront, and I was like, "Oh, this looks like a place I should uh, go inside and check out." And yeah, uh, that's when I first learned about the the store, and then I realized that uh, the pens and notebooks that we are using in the office. So basically there were two camps in the office. So either you were using the Moleskin notebook or you were using Muji's notebook. And there were people who loved their pens as well. I was never a fan of their pens, um, but notebooks are pretty nice. Um, and then also when we moved to Berlin, I I went to a store there. And I think this is the first time I tried their like uh, food items because up until uh, visiting the Berlin store, I only kind of realized that they have kind of host household items. But then, uh, you know, trying Japanese packaged goods 
food is also an interesting experience. So I'm yeah. definitely, let's call it a mini fan. Mini fan. Yeah, yeah, not like, you know, idolizing it. But yeah, it's nice. I like it. It is nice. Um, and those stores, there's over a thousand of them now around the world. 7,000 items. They've really expanded over the years um, from clothing and household goods to food. As you mentioned, Alan, uh, particularly kind of unusual uh, Japanese treats and things like that. Um, how many brands can either of you mention or think of that have created and sold fragrances, stationery, hotel rooms, cars, campsites, and even homes? Can you name any? They've been that diverse <laughs> at all. I, don't think, I can't think of I mean, any yeah. that have ever gone that far. And that's what Muji have done uh, since they were established in 1980. So fair to say that their brand proposition um, is still very much focused around the stores and household products. So things like clothing, um, bathroom accessories, uh, bedding, sheeting, um, a lot more of the kind of food kitchen kind of things mm. in a way very similar to a kind of ikea um variety of of products but definitely with a more unified and paired back design aesthetic so unlike an ikea where there's all kinds of styles to meet everyone um there is very much a muji simplicity which has been there since the 80s um and i think that's a very big part of their appeal is there's a sort of timeless nature to it and an intentionality yep. of kind of stripping things back. So if you've been to an Ikea and enjoyed the kind of design sensibility, uh, the enormous range of items and the, the affordability, I think you'd probably enjoy Muji, but you'd have to kind of enjoy the paired back Japanese simplicity that goes with it. I'd say for me, if you've not been to Muji before, they're probably one of the closest kind of comparisons where it's higher level design, but democratized and affordable. Um, do you think that's fair to say? If you were kind of summing up a sort of comparison brand? Yeah, definitely. Sounds about right to me. It does. I mean, it's a very good point that you bring about like it has a very distinct look, uh, whereas IKEA just needs to cater to more tastes and Muji is, which is interesting because both of these brands have such a strong heritage, like Ikea, even the colors, it's like, you know, it's Scandinavia, it's Sweden, and Muji is Japanese. But Ikea, I think, just more globalized itself. The thing that's left is the names. And Muji has like distinct Japanese look. There's on their packaging, it's always Japanese description of the products. So you can't really know what it is actually if you can't speak Japanese. Um, so it, it just, it, I think Muji goes deeper into this like Japanese heritage than IKEA does with, with, uh, its Scandinavian heritage. Definitely. And talking of her heritage, you already mentioned established in 1980, and it was originally an in-store brand for a larger department store chain. And I know every episode I do a horrendous job of pronouncing things. This is going to be no different, probably worse than ever. And we won't have Franz to fall back on. Um, unless it's <laughs> nope, Japanese, it's, it's good. good. <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, so the department store that it was part of was called Seiyu. Someone in the comments tell us if, whether we're pronouncing these correctly or not, because I'm really sorry they're going to get butchered. Um, so say it again, Tom, just to talk for you. <laughs> well, I think it's um, Seiyu. 
So you, please correct okay. me if I'm wrong. Um, and there's some there's some really uh, fun names I'm going to try and pronounce now. Um, so it's initiated as this sort of sub brand for that uh, department sta- store by someone called Seiji Sumi. I think that's right. Um, and he was the head of the Seiji retail group, and it was it came about as a response to the kind of consumerism and excess that was starting to come across from the West into Japan in the 1970s. It was really characterized by this sort of desire for high-end brands, um, fussy uh, fussy looking products, um, and kind of paying too much probably for something that just just had the same function as uh, as a basic product so because it had some western designer brand on it it was a lot more expensive and that had become very desirable and this was very much an intentional movement away from that um and that philosophy that ethos has continued to this day thankfully and i think it's part of what makes it strategically interesting and what i think is is one of the reasons that designers kind of those of us that appreciate um sort of democratic democratic utilitarian um accessible minimal. design really yeah minimal really value uh in a brand like muji um so yeah it was aimed to sort of counter that trend by offering sort of simple quality products but stripping away all that unnecessary costs associated with branding and advertising so as alan already mentioned extremely light on any packaging um the sort of descriptions and instructions that come with these products is usually very, very lightweight. It might be wrapped in a tiny bit of uh, card um, that really doesn't say much about it. But again, that speaks to this sort of simplicity and ease of use that you should just understand how the product works and what it's for rather than needing it kind of explained to you. Um, Some products do that better than others, has to be said. And the name itself, Muji, comes from a the, the longer original name again tricky one for me to pronounce which was mujirushi ryohen which means roughly translated no brand quality goods so that was shortened to muji at, uh, at some point so really i think that tells you all you need to know about uh the kind of ethos that this was established uh upon um and yeah, walk into a Muji store. I remember I went to my first Muji store probably 15 years ago. There used to be a big shopping centre, or there is a big shopping centre um, in Kent, which is sort of outskirts of London, called Blue Water. And that, that was where I first saw a Muji store. And it immediately caught my eye. Really, there was nothing similar to it at the time. There are lots of copycats now. Mm. Um, but there was something kind of refreshing uh, in its pairback nature, and actually, it threw me a bit. The fact that there was very little brand there at all, very little in the in the way of um, instructions or packaging, um, it, it really, really stood out. Um, subsequently, been lucky enough to go and uh, visit the mega store, the kind of um, holy grail of Muji uh, in in Tokyo. Which I have to say, really? if you, if, you, if you've ever been, if you if you get to go to Tokyo, go to the Muji store. It is just mind blowing. It's like five floors of, yeah, just like 
go to the store and stay in their hotel. And stay in the hotel. <laughs> the hotel is the top two floors, which we'll get on to. Um, but yeah, you've been there. I haven't stayed in the hotel. I wish I mm. had, but I've been to the I've been to the store, um, and it was incredible. I think a lot of the products that you get in the Japanese stores you don't get uh, in the US or or mm-hmm. in Europe. And there's some mad mad shit. <laughs> um, <laughs> if you've if you've been to Japan, you realise like consumerism is off the charts, but also the variety of products you can buy and the unusual stuff is just just. So what do you remember? Give us um, one example. A lot of the food things that were in there were really quite unusual, but I mean that's Japan in general. I don't want to kind of go down a rabbit hole of um, Japanese cuisine and how fascinating it is because I could uh, happily. But yeah, a lot of really interesting ingredients, a lot of really interesting kind of cookware things that I didn't see in the UK store. Saying that though, the UK store I've been to is very small compared to that one in Tokyo. It's it's enormous. Um, so yeah, something like seven thousand products they have. Um, I think a couple of the stores in the US are similar scale, but still don't have all of those products. Um, mm. Lots of clothing as well. Um, a few more like traditional cuts on on clothing that probably wouldn't translate so well uh, in the West. But yeah, if you get the chance to go, absolutely. Um, yeah, could easily spend a few hours and a lot of yen <laughs> in uh, in that place. I think the only things I bought were like had to buy some of the pens because that's kind of one of the signature products. Alan, you already mentioned um, Mm. beautiful kind of gel ballpoints that have got some really interesting design features, but they have like just have the little Muji sticker on and that's it. And you basically take that off and it's like this transparent um, gel pen. And I think to me, that's the iconic one as a designer, Um, that and the notepad. Um, But they do have a lot of iconic designs. Uh, across the range, things like their diffusers, um, some of their cookware. So yeah, it's it's a fascinating place as a designer to go and go and hang out. Which is why I love IKEA as well. Any excuse to go go, go to IKEA. Yeah. I don't know about either of you. <laughs> Just you... choose the right time. Yes, choose the right I love time. to go to IKEA, but do it on a weekday at eight p.m. Yeah, yeah. Do, <laughs> hey, do either of you have this where you're just like? If I haven't gone to IKEA for a couple of years, it's like I just want to go and see what what new stuff they've come up with. There's always something interesting. Um, there's always, yeah, I, I never come away empty-handed. But it's not to, it's often not to go and buy. And I think you can have a similar experience in Muji. But am I the only design tourist uh, who who does that with <laughs> IKEA? Um, let us know in the comments. But yeah, Alan Franz, are you the kind of person that would go into a Muji store or an IKEA store just to just to do that? So there are exactly three stores, three kind of stores that I love to just walk through. Actually four. I love my grocery shopping too, but I do that on a regular basis. But the things that I just like doing, even if I don't really do something, need something, is IKEA, like furniture. Then it's uh, sports. So just any sport outlet, just having a look at what's in there. And the last one is... (laughs) DIY stores. Oh man, yeah, <laughs> I'm with I you. I really like it. <laughs> You're a dude. And everything else, like uh, I don't know, it's hard. I don't enjoy shopping, but I think I would enjy a Muji store. Yeah, Alan, um, definitely a lot of time that would go into IKEA just to check stuff. Um, but uh, I am a like a tourist. Let's. I think you use the word 
designer tourist town. Mm. And it's funny you use this phrase because uh, when I worked at IDEO, we had this, it was basically a document. So each office, I believe each office actually prepared like a document for the visiting uh, team. So if you, know, if you would do research in China or Japan on U or US, you would travel to the to the city where the office is and then the hospitality team would have this like a list of things that you should check out while there and sometimes often or, or like all of these lists had stores on mm -hmm. there or you should check out this like in san francisco it was i remember it was maybe converse like how you can go in there and design your own shoe whatever and uh, that's kind of a tourist that i am so if i go somewhere i do want to check this like flagship stores of the brands that I love. So I was actually in Tokyo and I have to inform you that I kind of forgot about go going into the store or to the hotel. And I'm really sad about that. So that's maybe for the next uh, for the next um, trip to, to Tokyo. Any excuse to go back there. Um, oh. Yeah, definitely. Um, the other, about the, it, yeah. Just side note, if, if talking of stores that are designed... Maybe not design focus, but definitely an interesting retail experience. If you are lucky enough to go to Tokyo, is Tokyo Hands, which is another sort of department store that has like incredible stationery and lots of really interesting design-led products in there. Um, so yeah, fascinating place to go. The home of the home of Muji uh, as well. And I, if I go back, I definitely want to do a night or two at the Muji Hotel. Um, oh yeah, which which I'm going to wait for us to kind of get into in a in a little bit. Um, because yes, lots of household products, cookery, um, you can buy great food now from Muji, but yes, they have expanded in some really fascinating areas, which I'm just going to touch on. Cause I think we're going to get into it in the, uh, in more detail when we talk about strategic moves, but now run three hotels, two in China, I believe one in Japan, the, the one, uh, that's the top two floors of the building where the Muji flagship, uh, store is in Ginza, um, also run campsites where yeah. you can go and stay and like all the lodges are well designed and you can hire all the equipment. I mean, just a fascinating kind of way to expand out the ethos into other areas. They made a car in 2001 that was very short lived, um, sort of very economical, small, minimalistic, didn't even have any branding on it. You know, again, they, they, they have this experimental mindset of what would what would the Muji approach to these different areas be? And some of them are with a view to that being a very profitable, um, sustainable, and maybe something they can, uh, business they can okay. grow, business aspect they can grow, which I'm sure things like the hotels uh, and the lodges hopefully will become. But there is also this kind of experimental, like what if um, approach that maybe leads to other uh, breakthroughs. So famously, their art director for I think 10, 15 years has been Ken Yahara, like yeah, absolutely incredible designer, definitely worth checking out some of his books, but he has kind of headed up Muji's um, art direction for a long time. And he talks about how they like to run these thought experiments of like, what would the Muji of X be? You know, what would the Muji baseball team be like was one of the quotes I saw. Um, what would the sports facility look like? Um, you know, 
I, th I think that would be crossing the streams for for Franz there. You know, what if we were to do sports equipment as well? So I think as a as a thought experiment, that's really interesting, and perhaps has led them to say, let's see what the Muji of these things would look like, and they've ended up becoming businesses, which is fascinating. Mm. Um, I think as a designer, that's a really useful and thought provoking exercise to go through. Maybe maybe you work for a brand team or maybe you work at an agency that has a particular way of doing things. And maybe that's a just a good thought experiment or workshop to run with your team to be like, what would the the X of us be if we were to expand out? Because um, you just never know what interesting things might come off the back of that. So I loved that that kind of that kind of thinking. Yeah. Um yes. And there are three kind of key values that, that Muji from day one have tried to live um, to be this kind of ultimate less is more global brand. Three things. The first is selection of materials, which is ensuring that um, the material is appropriate for the product they're designing, but also um, as much as possible doesn't damage the environment, won't cause harm to, to the user, doesn't have any unnecessary um, processing as part of it. Um, which is the second of their key values, which is the streamlining of processes. So a good example of this is the paper that they use to wrap their products and have the very minimal instructions they have. So they select a paper which is kind of recycled, um, low impact, um, and a process that usually recycled papers go through is it might be bleached to kind of improve the the look of the colour to be more consistent. Mm. Muji more looked white, and said, basically. Yes, yeah, to make it white. Muji looked at that and was like, is that going to improve the functionality of the product? Is it going to be detrimental to the to the user, which I'll come back to that terminology in a second. Um, and the answer to both of these was no. There was absolutely no need to go through this process. It made it cheaper for the consumer because there was no bleaching involved, no chemicals involved, so it's more environmentally friendly. So when you see the the paper at Muji, it has this kind of, tint to it you think it looks a little rougher doesn't look as consistent across you know every product mm. but that's intentional uh, i think there's something to be admired about that and it's definitely a hallmark of how they do things and the third of their key values is simplification of packages so packages being not just packaging so we've already mentioned that there's this very minimal like cardboard packaging that goes around a lot of their products or very like cellophane which i'm sure they'll move away from but the simplification of the package itself as in the product so how can we scale this down and make it much much simpler um if you are not familiar with emoji's products and i always say this a quick google of some of their homewares things like lamps or uh, cleaning materials things like that the broom broom the broom right it's an absolute um, masterclass in simplicity. Yeah, everything is the same color. Everything's the same material. Uh, there's no branding on there. There's no like click here things, anything like that. Um, they sort of go into the background in uh, in the home, which is a, a massive part of their sort of philosophy. Um, so yeah, those are the kind of three key values that they they try and try and live by. Franz, you've mentioned the broom. I'm sure we've all had a little look at some of Muji's products as part of this research. Any that either of you really are coveting now that maybe really caught your eye and thought, yeah, I, I can see that in my home. If it was 2000 and 
five, the CD player. Mm. <laughs> Expand on that, Franz, because I know the one you're talking about. It's because it's a beauty. Like it basically, it looks like a lamp that you would mount on a wall. So it's just a square. It's white. There is a CD in the middle, and it has a string attached. You pull the string, music plays. Done. Yeah. And that's crazy. Yeah. It's all just one little box. (laughs) You can see the CD going around. They're not trying to hide that. And you just pull a string to start, pull a string to stop. Beautiful. It's beautiful, right? Really beautiful. It's just, I mean, I don't, I maybe own some CDs in some box in some basement that I have spread my stuff around. But yeah, obviously not very useful anymore. But um, I like the product. It's just nice. Alan, anything that caught your eye? Nothing I would buy right now, but it's just I really love the aesthetic of their like bedding. Mm. Like when you're in the store, but also when you look at their photos online, just like the way that the sheets go over the bed, it just looks it so makes it look so soft and fluffy and just like you just wanna go in there and hope for a very cold winter night and just, you know cover yourself <laughs> and the uh, shits. So yeah, uh, it has a really, really nice look. Um, yeah, so that, that was the thing that caught my mind the most, um, in addition to stationary, of course. You know, that's always looks very, very nice. Yeah, the stationary for me is always the killer. Uh, easy way to spend a few few quid without thinking about it. Um, and yeah. you're right, there is a sort of coziness to, to, the, um, to the homewares and the clothing. Actually, the clothing's really caught my eye. I think I might be getting an order in of some of their sort of minimal stuff. So, yeah, it looks interesting. This, One this, of the products, this episodes sorry, are uh, these episodes are costing us a lot of money, oh, right? So man. every time, well, we... <laughs> thankfully with Muji, it's pretty um, affordable. You know, we, mm, we've, reasonable. We, we're reasonable. Yeah, when when <laughs> we've when I look back at some of the brands we've talked about, the, unsurprisingly, when you're talking about design and, uh, and especially high end design, there tends to be a lot more luxury or slightly less affordable brands in there. But I think Muji strikes a balance of being minimal, um, thoughtfully designed, but actually quite affordable. Um, mm. Maybe not quite IKEA pricing, but not far off. It has to be said. You know, I was looking at some clothing. It's like. 35 bucks for some trousers um some of their stationery is like three dollars um for a pen um you know some of their storage containers are probably a little cheaper or comparable with the ikea so that's the price point we're talking about here and i think if you saw them out of context if you didn't realize they were muji and you saw a photo of them you could quite easily anchor to much more expensive products that you might have seen in more niche or bougie um stores bougie bougie Bougie, bougie, bougie. Um, so yes, talking of design, um, I'm going to quickly r- rattle through 10, which is quite a few, 10 reasons why I think designers <laughs> love Muji. And chaps, please jump in if you feel you have to, mainly to stop me waffling on. <laughs> uh, Tom, you, you need to solve this better. I'm going to talk about 10 things designers love Muji for, and you're going to love number seven, right? You're going to love number seven. Keep listening to number seven. Um, we might Stay come up with another seven. 11. Um, <laughs> so number one, that minimalist um, aesthetic, uh, the Muji emphasized that simplicity, clean lines, neutral colors, no superfluous detail. And that really, it really means that these these products have a real longevity. Um, 
I've read kind of interviews with the the heads of design and kind of um, retail heads saying, if you bought a Muji um, site storage solution 10 years ago, you can still go into the store now and buy a new drawer for it. It's going to fit. It's going to look exactly the same because it's it's designed with that timeless simplicity there. So big fan of that. And then there's the functionality side of things. I think more than more than any kind of big brand, and I include IKEA in this, there is an absolute focus on user centricity that you do not see at this price point very often. Um, they do an awful lot of researching people's homes, ethnographic work that user-centered designers and service designers would should really admire. Um, and that is with this functional first approach um, when it comes to designing products. So trying to ensure that they're streamlining how people are going to use these in their homes. Um, I, I don't think you see the, quite the attention to detail um, that Muji have when it comes to designing mass market products. And they refer to the people who end up buying their products in their literature, uh, internal and external, not as customers or consumers, but as users. And I think that is a really key kind of component of their ethos that, that, that I admire enormously. Number three is that unbranded nature, which is really rare in the sort of modern consumer world. Um, and again, it allows the design and the functionality to take center stage without distraction. Um, next thing is quality materials. Despite the fact they're like mega affordable, um, they're often made with high quality materials um, that have been selected with care. And the fact that they use a lot of the same materials across a lot of their products probably gives them some economies of scale that allows them to use maybe a higher quality product um, across more of their range, which is super interesting. Um, we already said one of their pillars is... Um, material selection is like priority one um mm. next thing is sustainability we've already talked about the fact that they make a lot of packaging and material choices um to be as sustainable and eco-conscious as possible but that also extends to their um, processes um and that's become something that companies have focused on maybe more and more in the last decade but that's been central to muji since day one um not wanting to get caught up in this sort of fast fashion um, Western brand philosophy that was around in the 70s and has continued in a lot of areas. So they've been there long time, OG, a, a brand on the sustainability front and having it so central um, to what makes them special and interesting. Next is the versatility. Um, because they're so simple, um, their products can seamlessly fit into a variety of environments, which is really interesting from like traditional homes to modern homes and offices. Um, I don't think you get that even with something like Ikea, where they try and have lots and lots of different styles and almost encouraging you to maybe change your styles every few years. Muji have a definite minimalism that means mm. you could keep that product for a very long time and so probably universal. fit it into, into different contexts. I could absolutely imagine some of their products working uh, how I had my house designed five, 10 years ago and in 10 years from now. And that's very appealing. And I could go and buy the same product if I like it in five and 10 years and know it's still going to be on the shelf in Muji. Um, 
Number seven is their philosophy in general, this philosophy of no brand quality goods. It kind of challenges that conventional consumerist mindset. Um, instead of promoting that excessive consumption, it encourages people to be thoughtful and mindful with their purchasing, which for me as a designer um, resonates enormously and increasingly is something that resonates with myself and I know a lot of people in the design community. Um, next thing is affordability. For the quality and the design on offer, I think Muji products are incredibly reasonably priced and we've already touched on that. And that makes good design a bit like Ikea again, accessible to more people. Um, and we've talked before about impact as a designer. If I can get good design into the hands of more people, that's great for me. It's not exclusive. And I've already mentioned you could see these kind of designs being in a more exclusive place if you didn't know they were Muji. But no, you can go and pick this stuff up at a very reasonable price. Um, final things are innovation. They introduce products that address everyday problems in really clever ways. And I find that very inspiring as a designer. Um, things like their... I, I'm not going to go into detail now. Go and check out the way that they design some of their cleaning products, for example. Um, Franz has already mentioned the CD player that kind of lives on your wall. So it takes up a bit less space and has this very, very simple mechanism that I'd never seen a CD player designed in that way before. And it's not just a novelty. Like I can imagine using it in that way. Um, so, yeah, very clever, very interesting ways of rethinking um, everyday objects. And then finally, there is this holistic experience. We talked in the couple of episodes ago about how Aesop have this sort of unique store design to uh, each of their stores, but Muji don't have that. Um, they do have a more, I'd say, design system approach, like every store is pretty recognizable, but there is a sort of calming, organized and pleasant um, experience to navigate the stores, which I think is reflected in the products as well. That ethos seems to be extended to the people who work there uh, and the in-store experience, um, which I really appreciate. So yeah, for me, the appeal of Muji can be summed up as this sort of intersection of simplicity, functionality, and thoughtfulness, um, and the sort of consistent commitment they've made to those, those three pillars we talked about earlier. Um, so yeah, Big, big Muji fan. Uh, I think it uh, goes without saying. <laughs> yeah. Do you think Game I've missed anything, sure. chaps, on the sort of reasons that, that Muji might appeal um, to designers who who listen to this podcast? Nothing comes to mind. Good. No, maybe great, maybe great, business. <laughs> great business. Great business. <laughs> yeah, um, we'll hear about that later. Indeed. What's interesting to me is that the founding, this philosophy was there from the very, very start, right? So this being founded in the 80s at a time in Japan where you had this notion of desirable is a brand and brands are the things that actually draw people towards them. Um that's super interesting thing to counter that, especially when you, I read up a little bit on this and this at the point in time is was actually a, a real gap because the whole um, market in Japan, apparently in the 1970s went into the direction of um, sometimes it's called the hourglass shape, right? So you have the very expensive branded products, but then on the other hand, you have the very cheap very bad quality 
products. And when Muji was actually founded from Seiyu, um, they saw this first economic wave that Japan was rising, uh, riding a little bit calming down. And then when consumers got more, when users, in Muji's words, um, became more conscious about how they spent their money, there wasn't really an alternative um, that was good because cheap products were just not good. They were really, really bad quality. And getting into this in-between ground of no brand quality goods was something that's very that was very novel at this point in time. Um, and that's why I found this uh, super interesting founding story, just in general to, um, yeah, go into, again, go into a place in the market that was just not um, occupied by anyone at this point in time. It seems to be a running pattern and a theme for all of these like successful companies is like you identify uh, basically where everyone is headed and then identify the gap which this trend has created. In this case, it's exactly, as you said, Franz, it's a need for this like affordable but yeah. good quality products. Yeah. Did you hear about uh, some people referring to Muji as Spartan luxury? Yeah, I read that. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> That's interesting. I think when they started, that wasn't the case. When they started, it was really simple, functional, good yeah. products with reasonable pricing. Um, and only when this philosophy or lifestyle became more widespread, it became actually the Spartan luxury. But I'm going to get there uh, in a second because what I want to do today is basically do things a little bit different than we than we usually did it when we talked about strategy. What I would usually do is walk you through core strategic decisions of the company or core um, changes of the company, events of the company in a chronological order, and then also explain the strategic significance of these decisions and changes. Um, but this time... I'd rather give you a like chronolo uh, chronological order first and then talk about the strategy and you'll um, realize why I do this later. Again, Tom uh, already mentioned a lot of things that, that, that happened, uh, but I'm still gonna go through uh, the um, order of events because I think I got some more and some other stuff that happened in the course of the company history. As we said, founded in 1980s, by this retail group as a in-house brand. Uh, so they didn't have own shops. It was just a brand in another supermarket. Then they opened three years later their first store and then became an own company in 1989. So they saw that it was super successful and they um, founded the Ryohin Kaikaku Company LTD. Again, not certain if this is pronounced that way. So... They, hand, they established this company that handled from this point on every step from planning products, development, manufacturing um, of goods and distribution and sale. What's important to know is that Muchi does not manufacture in-house. They barely manufacture in-house. They primarily rely on a network of third-party supplier. They do closely work together with these manufacturers. So to ensure that the quality is met and the design standards are met. But what they really focus on from the very start is product development, design, marketing, and we'll talk about this later, 
and sales. So this is the core of this um, company, um, not, produ uh, not production, but really product development, design, marketing, and sales. 1991, and that's going to continue like this. Just I'm just going to give you, <laughs> I'm just going to give you years and what happened in this year. Um, so 1991, first store in London. Actually, their first international store was opened in London, and from this point in time, they continued um, internationalization. 2001, Muji actually for the first time struggled big times. So especially in Japan, they had a little bit of a too aggressive expansion strategy. Um, and that's really tricky with this brick and mortar um, shop concept, retail concept that they have, because it's linked to a lot of fixed cost. Um, and that basically almost killed them. And after that, um, things got a bit wild. Actually, this is exactly when diversification started and exactly what Tom pointed out. So bear with me, 1995, Muji Campsite was established. So retail company, 1995, deciding to do a Muji Campsite. Now there are three of them to date. Then 1996, they opened a flower shop. 2001, Muji Car. Limited edition, 1,000 cars together with Nissan. Uh, depending on where you live, you know this car, actually, under the name Nissan Micra or Nissan March. Oh, I and thought it looked car. slightly yeah. familiar, the shape. Yeah. Okay. So did they did they just take a Micra and, like, Mujify it? Is that basically exactly. what happened? Right. They just, That's exactly they, what they did. They just took the feature out and make it more simple. And they only use one color, so you can only buy it in so-called marble white. So it's not white, it's marble white. Yeah. And again, remember Tom's story about paper not being bleached, so it's not super white? That color comes back in the Muji car, right? It's not super white, it's just whitish something. Mm. like It's a little... Not very white, but as you said, Alan, it's the most basic version, most basic specification of the Nissan March. Um, only one color and no badge. So on this car, there is no Nissan badge, um, no Muji badge. It's just a white, very basic, small car. 2004, Muji house, prefabricated houses, also huts. Um, yes. Very nice website. It's unfortunately only in um, Japanese. There is still like use Chrome translated. It it's it's very nice. And what do they run at? Yeah. Like twenty, the equivalent of about twenty thousand bucks, something like that. US the hut, the hut. I think hut. Yeah, yeah. but the house is around hundred and twenty k. Yeah, but yeah. the house is proper, right? It's yeah. not yeah. a hut. It's a two story. So no, they have four different houses. The one, hmm. a smaller yeah. one, until the they call it vertical. So it's actually three or four stories designed for a very small plot. So it's actually four different specifications. Um, super nice. It's interesting. I, yeah, but I think this is only available in the J in Japan, right? Yes. Houses, because exactly. yeah, it is. Yeah, and I think there's there's a culture in Japan of you, but like buying a home and then rebuilding it like every few decades which isn't terribly sustainable. So apparently like the market for a prefabricated house that fits these these plots is pretty pretty big, probably bigger than it would be outside there. But they're actually trying to make it something that would last a lot longer as well. So they've really thought about the longevity. Um, yeah. 
rather than just, you know, rebuilding it in 30 or 40 years. Admirable stuff. I want one. <laughs> <laughs> so 2010s diversification uh, race continues. Muji Cafes and Mills restaurant chain. 2018, first Muji Hotel in Shanghai, now also in Tokyo. Um, 2000, uh, 2020, subscription for home furnishing. So you don't buy their furniture, you rent their furniture. Um, also, 2000, uh, also 2020, the US branch of the company files for bankruptcy. Um, not an exit, they're still in the US, but they struggled big times um, and again, I'm talking about it a little later. At the end of August 2022, that was the latest number that I could find. Muji operates 530-ish stores in Japan, 600-ish stores outside of Japan in 32 countries with 7,000 products. So that's a lot. It's not maybe the biggest range ever, but it's a lot of different products. Until then... Muji products were almost exclusively sold in their own stores and in their online shop, but also in 2022, Muji products are now available for purchase in Lawson stores all over Japan. And Lawson is also kind of a corner store, as I no. understood it. So yeah, like a 7-Eleven. Like, exactly, 7-Eleven. Um, so also very basic. Um, and yeah, for the first time, they're really rolling out um, sales to third-party companies. Okay, so that was the fast track. A lot of this um, uh, was already mentioned, but again, a huge variety, right? One company coming from retail um, in itself having a broad um, range of products, but not even that, but also different portfolio of companies, right? So question is, <laughs> how does this all fit together? <laughs> like, why are you doing this, Muji? So, um, well, the interesting thing to me here was that the Muji of the 80s with the Muji of now is on the one hand very different, right? Super diversified, fully internationalized, but at the same time, it's exactly the same when it comes to the core value proposition, no brand quality goods. Like the thing that you read on the website, original, um, original, let's say marketing slogan was lower priced for a reason. Muji, the name, no brand quality goods was there from the very start and they are still doubling down on this. So it's very, very much the same approach over now, what is it? 40, more than 40 years. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And yeah, let's look at first the core business to understand that. So they stay true over the 40, more than 40 years to their philosophy on the, let's say, mostly cost side. Exactly what you said, selection of materials, streamlining processes, simplification of packages. But as importantly, they also stay true to this philosophy on the value proposition side when they develop uh, products and the core principle here was always the simplicity, right? Simplicity, not for the sake of it, but as a result of removing the unnecessary additions. So if you still haven't done so listening to this podcast, pause real quick and have a look at the Muji online store. 
and you will feel like the first thing is that Muji, they only sell necessities, right? So it's pens, storage boxes, linen, brooms, candles, furniture. It does not really get more interesting than that, right? The most interesting things are maybe their electronics like fans and CD players. Um, but you can argue that in non-European countries, even this is a necessity, right? So first, this simplicity of this simplicity already starts in their product line. There is no fancy stuff that they are actually selling um, when it comes to their core uh, business, the Muji stores. And even the design of these necessities is simple, as Tom said, right? They Everything is kept in natural colors. Um, the design is timeless. Um, the goal is always, and here I'm quoting, remo removing the minor inconveniences that occur on a daily basis when using these products. And if you have this in the core when you design a product, then you will uh, eventually, yeah, arrive at the most basic um, specification of something that just serves the purpose. And that's what they are aiming for, right? And this is why, and we talked about this even before we st um, we uh, started this podcast, because this resonates a lot with me personally. They're aiming for this will do. So it's not about, hey, this is exactly what I want. I really need this. It's more about, okay, that's exactly the thing. This will do. Not more, not less. And they're aiming for this rational level of satisfaction. This really basic thing of, okay, yeah, that's the job. That's good. I think this is the first brand we've worked on where that has really hit into Fran's sweet spot. <laughs> before, Like you said, before we were recording, he had a grin in his face and was like, I like these guys. <laughs> yeah. He I really love Aesop. Sorry, go on. No, I just wanted to confirm Tom's thoughts because uh, I think you wrote to me, Franz, a day before we recorded or something like, oh, I really am loving the research this time. <laughs> yeah. The, the thing is, I already love the Aesop brand, right? But it's not exactly my cup of tea to buy a soap for 35 years. But this, like beautiful, minimalistic, simplistic things that are reasonably priced and just hunt my rational um, sense of satisfaction. That's just what Muji does and what I'm really fascinated by. Um, and yeah, eventually and at the end, they have these products and none of their products are branded. No logos at all. And again, I'm quoting, if you take off the price tag, there is no indication that the product is from Muji, coming from a Muji executive, right? This is a strategic decision. Take yeah. the lab label off. If nobody knows Muji, nobody will ever know where you have this product from. But when they touch it, try it, see it, everybody will be like, hmm, there is something. It's, it's something special. It's interesting because there's a lot of parallels with Aesop, but one is super premium and the other one is like super affordable because Aesop has this non-marketing approach um, and Muji has this non-branding approach. Yeah. Both in the end want to achieve the same thing, which is word of mouth through having a superior product or experience. Uh, but they just try to play a different game. So 
not invest in marketing, but rather invest even more into design to make a something that's worth talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I think and one, similar to sorry, Tom, go on. I was just gonna say the, the restraint is um is is the the big thing there in the design. And I think a lot of brands ESOP, you can still recognize the brown bottle and the typography and it, it sends a signal, um, I think, when that's in your home that Muji doesn't. That's where it's very different. Um, and I think an example of them absolutely sticking to that ethos admirably is the fact that they have collaborated on designs for some of their products with some proper high-end, very desirable design names, many of them unpronounceable to me. Um, but they do not, they absolutely insist on not mentioning the names of those designers at all in their marketing or on the products and just let the, the products speak for themselves. Yeah. And can you imagine a Western brand resisting saying, we've got this like sick collaboration, like they charge you more for it. Eames chair. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> At the extreme nope, end of the spectrum, <laughs> an Eames chair. Yeah. But you know, if like H&M do um, the collaboration Beckham. with Stella McCartney or something like that, yeah. Yeah. you know, that's going to sell out quickly. They're going to market the shit out of it. They're going to charge us, you know, 20, 30% premium. Muji are doing that, but they're being so classy, in my opinion, and sticking to their guns. Yeah, it, yeah. it is a hard decision to make. And I think you see the results over a long period of time. You don't see like this short term spike in sales, mm. but if you do it the right way, you can just build this story that just keeps going on for decades and decades. And that's what Japanese brands and companies are good at, much better than the Westerns, Western are. Yeah. Okay, so this was now, let's say, a decision for strategic coherence over 45 years when it comes to their core business. But then we also talked about their diversity for its portfolio, right? And it turns out that every single decision and the way it's executed shows that they follow the exact same approach, right? As you said, it's like mujifying something that's not in their core business. How would a Muji version of this look like? And that's just a few examples. I'm not going to go through every single diversified product, but um, I mean, Campsite, very weird first step to diversify as a company because it's definitely not a great business. But again, it's about escaping the city and it's about returning to um, and valuing the basics of life and connecting with nature. And again, this rational satisfaction of that's enough. That's the basics or hotels. Hotels is the big, the biggest example for a market that went completely into this hourglass shape, right? If you look at the hotel landscape, you have either one strategic group that competes over stars and luxury. And then on the other hand, you have no frills hotels, very basic, not great, but very cheap. And Muji just disagreed with this industry structure and um, yeah, have their new concept which is called anti-cheap and anti-gorgeous so yeah we are not cheap but we're also not luxury we are in the middle we're good quality no brand muji hotel same thing cafe and meals and i'm quoting from the website 
The aim is to cook as simply as possible to bring out the ingredients' natural taste, which are full of blessings from the sun, soil, and water. Obviously, marketing language, but again, trying to cook as simply as possible. Muji House. I need to quote again. More than 7,000 items of household goods and handle, uh, household goods handled by Muji are the basics of our life. So they talk about the stores, right? The Muji house is an extension of that, and it's the largest household product. Wow. How cool is that? <laughs> Super cool, man. <laughs> yeah. And it's just, it just seems to, they seem to stick to their guns so well in all of these things that they diversify into. Um, and from a design perspective, something I, I learned in the research um, is that the process they have resists technology for its own sake. Um, and they still prototype all their designs, including the house, including all their ha household stuff on paper rather than computer, um, because that encourages the lack of unnecessary detail, right? If you're just designing by hand, you're going to keep things really simplified. And again, I, yeah, I just love that, particularly as a designer who tends to start on paper and, and loves that part of the process. Um, so, yeah, that really yeah. that really spoke to me. That's true. Okay, so we now talked about their coherence of strategic decisions. It's within their product range of their core business, but also within this huge diversified portfolio. And through this strategic focus and very clear direction, they are able to do, in my opinion, two very interesting stretches. The first stretch is what started out as a relentlessly product-focused company. So they just had a bunch of products that they tried to make more simple. It has become more a lifestyle-focused company. So they cater not really to for one product category. They cater much more to a, let's say, life of simplicity. Um, they even have a name for this, Kenketsu. So life of simplicity. And yeah, Muji just tries to understand the needs of people who want to live a life like this and then try to create products that um, go into this um, niche of simplicity, functionality, and minimalism. And it also kind of enables the second stretch, with which is this thing of no brand approach, which is actually the brand approach. So let's not be kidding ourselves. Muji obviously wants us to recognize their brand. And the way they do this is by really focusing on absolutely no branding, just similar to um, Aesop not doing marketing, but still wanting to be very um, recognizable with all their bottles. Um, Muji goes into not having any branding on their um, on their products. And this is exactly why a lot of people talk about it and exactly why a lot of people um, like the brand, the one that they try to hide so much on the surface level, right? And here's another parallel with Aesop. Like if you decide to go with the non-marketing, non-branding approach, the way to still do marketing is by having retail presence. And both of these companies, we talked about Aesop in two yeah. episodes back, their whole thing was, hey, we need to become retail first 
for more people to learn about us. And Muji is doing the same thing. Basically, their marketing is opening stores around the yep. world in the cities. Uh, are you going to talk more about that? If not, I have, if not, I have one more thing I found in the annual report about their marketing approach. Give it to us. <laughs> <laughs> so the thing I found was, and it makes a lot of sense if you think about it, like, okay, we don't do marketing, but the way we will convey our values and the way we will quote unquote do marketing is by not talking about products, but by talking about Muji values and Muji concept. So we don't talk about specific products, we only talk about the company and our approach. And then you should trust us that each product is done this specific way. Um, however, um, what has happened now is that they are trying to have a new approach where they have identified which are the best selling products and they try to go and promote those products a little bit more uh, by placing them in a store differently, by communicating the values a little bit more. Because the thing they have learned actually is that by only communicating the overall concept and not the product, there were certain products that their fan base loved, but some didn't even notice that they existed. So, you know, they didn't really leverage the hits, mm. which is what every company wants to do. If you have a hit, if you have an iPhone, you want everyone to learn about the iPhone. And obviously, Muji has the pens, and the pens are well positioned in every store, but they had other hits that you walking into a store, you wouldn't know it's a hit. And maybe, Tom, you were also in a store, and uh, I was as well. And like the feeling you get when you're in a store is like all the products are equal. You don't have a feeling that there is something that's more important than the other. But now, apparently, they're making a change with that, trying to have those like, hey, I want to highlight this type of product. Yeah. I mean, just in general, for all these brands that play on values, it's very important that at some point in time, you need to understand and in the best case, experience the brand, right? Because if you're not able to buy into the philosophy of such a brand, yeah, maybe the product hits you because you like it from a aesthetical perspective, but it's not like you're not going to get a fan just by the product. You need to kind of experience and understand the philosophy behind that. And stores definitely are the huge factor also for, for Muji. And that's why their recent decision to also sell stuff in the Lansing stores is so interesting Weird. to me. Um, because it gives me a sense of they're having distribution problems maybe, or they're having, um, they're having cost problems in terms of opening new stores. It's just too expensive way to grow. Um, but I'm going to keep that for I'll later. tell you more about it keep as well. That yeah. Thought. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I, I don't know if this is not, let's just do it. Because I want to get a little bit geeky and discuss this from a management perspective. Why does this no brand, quality goods, reasonable price, no, yeah, why does this even work? So on the one hand, you could argue that Muji's approach follows the blue ocean strategy logic, right? So blue ocean means you eliminate an investment factor that is a dominant in the industry and use that money to save and create a unique value for customers elsewhere. Like most prominent example for uh, is Southwest Airlines at the time when there was no 
no frills airlines. Um, it was a completely new approach. They eliminate complexity and also comfort from air travel and they reach the lowest possible price. And there are more examples like this. Um, so you could argue that this is taking away branding, investing it somewhere else um, is a blue ocean strategy. But what usually happens, and here, correct me if I'm, I'm happy to be challenged on this thought. We didn't discuss this before. But usually what happens with blue ocean is that they still either go into no frills and um, cost leadership, or they go into diversification and being a more premium product. Maybe not the most premium, but still something that's on the higher end of the spectrum. So yes, you could argue that this is blue ocean, but on the other hand, the direction that they are going, no brand quality, reasonable pricing, is the one that you as a company actually want to avoid at all cost, because it's the stuck in the middle. Like it's not the best product, but it's also not the worst. It's not the cheapest, but it's also not premium. It's just reasonable. And it's fascinating that this approach that has barely ever worked, apparently kind of works for Muji. I'll mm. tell you more about that very soon. <laughs> I mean, but maybe they're <laughs> the not the most important. <laughs> maybe they're not the most, um, the most profitable. profitable company, right? But still 45 years as a company, is impressive with the strategy sure. that every management book will tell you don't go there don't be in the middle yeah i mean the amount of times we use today like hey let's we want to be like affordable and high quality and so like be in between is you never want to like mention this as many times as we did today when talking about strategy because usually want to go for either low cost or premium uh I think there are always exceptions, but yeah. yeah, we can. We'll talk about it. <laughs> I'm sure we'll get get into it. I would say the only thing I would challenge is um, the low quality, because yes, materials wise, potentially not the highest quality in the world, but design wise, the quality is extremely high. I think compared to comparable things at this price point. But we'll yeah. save some of that for later. No, that's, a, that's an interesting point. So maybe the way to see Muji is not as like. If we have this spectrum from affordable or let's say even cheap to premium, within the segment of cheap, Muji is the leader of like being the differentiated company, being yeah. the premium within the cheap ones. Yeah. You know? So you maybe it's not even stuck in between. Maybe it's like the premium of or the, the cheap affordable ones. luxury. What you said already in the beginning, right? Maybe. <laughs> so again, but it's nothing, right? It's somewhere in the middle. So we can't do so it could be the premium of the low cost. Or it could be the cheap of the premium, but it's like, yeah. But I'm looking forward to how this plays out in the financial side. I just want to say that it doesn't play out well everywhere, right? It doesn't work everywhere. And there are challenges with this exact approach, uh, especially in international markets. Like not everywhere in the world, people buy into this enough is enough philosophy, um, some markets perfectly function with this hourglass shape of premium and uh, low cost. Um, and if you pair this with challenges of international trade and like tariffs and shipping costs that inflate your prices and all of a sudden you're not as reasonably priced anymore, um, 
then you get exactly what happened in the with in the US with Muji in 2021. So we already said that this is um, the whole US branch of Muji went bankrupt in 2021. Um, in addition to pandemic, well, furniture products were not well adjusted to the US market. They were kind of too small for US homes. The anti-consumerism philosophy did not work as well or they didn't tell the story as well you make the decision what's true here. Um, having higher prices due to tariffs and shipping costs that combined with like a very strong competition in the US of in-house cheap brands and all of a sudden you don't have a space anymore in a country because that's still very narrow, right? And all of a sudden Muji was just a generic item that was maybe a little bit more beautiful but if you didn't buy the story um, then you could get things for cheaper that also worked and all of a sudden this middle ground in the hourglass didn't ex didn't exist anymore for for Muji in the US as we said they're not leaving the market um, they're still in there um, this bankruptcy was more an effort to restart and restructure but it's interesting that maybe it's not it can't be ikea right maybe this strategy that they are so focused on cannot be rolled out to to any country in the world yeah and we can have a look at the number of stores around the globe just to get a feeling for i wouldn't say this is the feeling for how and where the company is uh is currently big but also to get a feeling for where the concept stuck and where the concept really worked where this story and this heritage and this whole idea just flies well. So obviously the company has 500, more than 500 stores in Japan. Um, and then it has 400 plus something stores uh, also in East Asia. Uh, and then if you just look at North America and Europe, um, this number is almost like just 20 to 30 stores, almost nothing. If So you can see that there is this concept and this strategy works really well in Asia, but doesn't seem to be working as well elsewhere. Yeah. And again, I think the last bit that I mentioned with this um, decision to sell stuff also in Lawson stores, uh, that... Until this point in time, I thought they would be quite successful. Uh, but then when I saw this, that they will also sell um, in Lawson stores in their core market in Japan, it made me really suspicious. Because if you, I mean, if you have a brand recognition, then you can do this, right? You can have your products in a different store because you don't need the whole experience of selling in your own store um, and that's maybe why it works in Japan because it's so well known as a brand, Muji. But at the same time, if it's not well known and it is in a third-party store, you do not have the control over um, over the experience. And it's just going to be a very basic product that is still more expensive than the cheaper products in this store. And... Yeah, I was kind of concerned about this decision and thought whether it would be um, whether distribution problems would be a link to that. 
Have they tried doing that in other markets, um, the sort of convenience store thing, or is that just in Japan and Lawson's? I didn't read about any third-party yeah. selling. I and can see I it. I think especially if you open source in a market that, you, that you're that you not known in, then you kind of need this control over um, over the experience. Also, if you're not doing a lot of marketing, right? So yeah. Somewhere people need to be able to get to know you and buy into the, the brand story. Um, and if it's not your store, and if it's not the very big brand, and if it's not the very big marketing, then there is nothing left. Yeah, I guess I'm, I, I, given that, I, although it's kind of weird that they're selling them in those stores, I'm not. I, I, I personally like wouldn't see it as so much of an issue. It might be a red flag for some other distribution problems that you've already mentioned about, but I don't know. I really like it because I think of Muji in this sort of democratic, accessible brand, and you know, in Japan, people understand that, and I see that in Lawson's as well. It's like it's the every person corner store. Um, could be yeah. if their recognition is big enough I think you're absolutely right yeah yeah Because and, and also the convenience stores in Japan are weirdly a little more elevated I think than like 7-Eleven in Japan oh, yeah. is different mm-hmm. gravy to like 7-Eleven in the States <laughs> um, yeah it's like McDonald's in Europe versus McDonald's in the US yeah yeah interesting <laughs> yeah um, so I think we we should have a look at the numbers now because I think we teased through strategy also, oh, they seem to be doing well, but are they? Um, so let's maybe just try to tell the story by having a look at uh, the top level numbers. And uh, I'll just start with the revenue. So in terms of the total revenue of the company in 2022, um, it was 3.3 billion US dollars. And can you take a guess? Uh, maybe maybe it's not the best game, but like <laughs> what percentage of that revenue comes from Japan? 70%. Brunt? Second guessing is always the worst. I say <laughs> 69. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I was just surprised to learn that it was more than 50%. So it's not 70, it's not 69, it's 53. But still, like, being a company with 3.3 billion uh, US uh, dollars in revenue and having 50% in domestic market, it just tells us how still, you know, how domestic this brand is, how strong it is in Japan versus elsewhere. Uh, And um, compared to some other Japanese brands, I don't think they were as successful in like taking that leap. And maybe it's like this whole concept of brandless, um, brandless product that is just hard to do in a country where you don't have this heritage and you don't have this like initial story of why this thing worked in the beginning. So yeah, 50% comes of revenue comes from Japan, then another 30, 34% comes from East Asia, most of that is China, and then only 5% is Europe and North America. Very, oh, very rarely, five. Very, very rarely in an annual report do you find the Europe and North America bundled together in the revenue, uh, wow. <laughs> in the yeah. revenue numbers, right? It's like Europe is 10%, America is, I don't know, 15 but here it's like 5% combined. And I was, I was surprised by that. 
And then the rest is Southeast Asia and uh, Oceania, so that's 7%. Uh, next thing, I wanted to have a look at what percentage of this 3.3 billion uh, comes from different type of products. And there are four big um, categories. And let's start with the smallest one. So do you know what percentage comes from the hotel, houses, cafes, and the campsite? All together. Uh, Franz, you should guess first this time. Yeah. <laughs> uh three i was gonna say five okay. percent it's four so hey. very very good guesses yes um <laughs> uh, so yeah it's 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 interesting because we talked a lot about diversification but in reality you know there's house hotel cafe and other things they are basically just things that help i think tell the story of the brand better but it should ideally still lead um in more sales for their biggest um, categories of products, which are as following food, uh, apparel, and household. So food is 12%. So this is packaged food. I don't know, they have like chips and you can buy tea bags, you can buy uh, soy sauces and so on in their stores. So that's 12%. And then another 39% is apparel, um, so clothes. And then 47% is household, so the furniture. Um, I guess stationery also fits into the household, um, but it's not broken down as another category in there. Um, so that gives us some perspective of where they generate the revenue and from which type of products. Um, another interesting point to to now explore is, um, you know, is this revenue growing, declining? Is it stable? And here is an interesting thing. So um, in 2020, um, before the COVID hit, because they have a different way of counting the financial years, so they made 440 billion yens. Um, and then during the COVID, this fell down by 20%. And then in 2021, they have a very they had a very quick recovery. Uh, so their revenue was again 450 billion yens. And now in 2022, they are already at 500 billion yens, which is, as I said, roughly 3.3 million euros. So why is this interesting? Is because despite having this quite a big uh, drop during the COVID, the company was pretty successful in just recovering pretty quickly. And now they had like a 10% growth year over year from 2021 to 2022. So what is growing? You know, why is the company growing, you may ask, and I have an answer for you. Um, as we said before, these type of products, these type of companies rely heavily on the stores, you know, how many stores they open. And if you actually follow how many stores they opened between 2021 and 2022, you can see why there was the revenue growth. Because in 2021, the company had 1,002 stores. And 2022, they had 1,072 stores. So that's a 7% increase, which kind of explains also why there, there, there is a 10% increase in revenue is because you were you added almost 10% of new stores globally. And most of, the, most of these new stores were opened still in Japan. So how is company actually doing from profitability perspective, you may ask? So, uh, as I said before, revenue was 3.3 billion and operating profit was 220 million US 
dollars. So that gives us a profit margin of uh, 6%. Um, and I went and compared this with a couple of comparable brands. Uh, one is Uniqlo, uh, which is also a Japanese brand. It has a, let's just say that the story is different, but they're definitely big competitors uh, in terms of uh, Japanese heritage that tries to go and become a global brand. Um, so they have a much healthier margin, 12% operating profit margin, and Lululemon has 16% operating profit margin. So it's hard to read too much into that, but it does seem to me as, you know, trying to be the affordable luxury, trying to be the premium within the low cost is from the perspective of margins still a worse positioning than being trying to be the differentiated or the premium provider in a space. What's the smirk about on your face, Franz? Tell me. <laughs> Maybe that's the problem. What's the problem? How business works. <laughs> <laughs> ah okay so uh, th I, that's exactly what i said right so every management book tells you don't be where muji is mm. and now we just got the confirmation which is sad if you like the values of uh, what muji stands for right and i think this is quite um i would argue that we would need more companies with a similar value proposition. But if you are shareholder driven, you're not going to go there because you rather go for 14, 20, 30% margin. I don't know if this is possible with these kind of products, but we are just learned that a very similar company has double the, uh, the profit margin. Yeah, you usually don't go where Muji is if you're, yeah, if you. Are shareholder driven yeah if you're maximizing yeah. for shareholder value then yeah absolutely it's not not the not the play i would just i would just say that there are examples of companies that follow similar principles but because they have also very strong business fundamentals they're just valued by investors very 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 generously so the fact that this company has only 6% operating profit doesn't mean it's a bad business. Uh, not at all. Um, it just means, it just tells you the reality of like, you know, margins being higher elsewhere. But that does not need to equate with how valuable the company is. Uh, because their companies, for example, Costco uh, mm. from the US, it's very, very famous for marking up their products only by, I believe, 16%. And that's unheard of. So usually when you go into a store, and it's the same for Muji, uh, the price you see on the product, it's basically 50% of what the company has paid to acquire this product. So basically they just double their price and Costco only applies 15% on top. But despite that, um, they are unbelievably well positioned, not positioned, but valued by the investors because they have such a strong moat. So... I agree with you, Franz. Um, I'm just trying to paint the story that this operating profit is not the full picture of this being attractive or not attractive business. It, 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 it's more than that. But here is the kicker. <laughs> the problem I see like in their books is the following. There is a really, really important um, 
really, really important um, part of the annual report, which is called inventory turnover. So it's a KPI, very important for stores. And it basically tells us how frequently, how frequently the inventory is changed within a store. You know, like, does it change twice a year? Does it change five times a year? Like, does it change 10 times a year and so on? So we're going to play a game now, okay? And you're going to help me um, put these three companies um, on a list. Basically, how well they do in terms of the inventory turnover. So how frequently they actually sell off their inventory in a store. So there's three companies you're going to compare. Muji. Lululemon and Costco. So I want your guess for which company has the highest inventory turnover and which company has the lowest and which one is in between. So we're actually comparing three different companies. One is uh, food, uh, food supplier, retailer, Costco, Lululemon with apparel, and then Muji that sells food, apparel, and furniture. So the guesses, please. I think there is a natural winner if you have perishable products, then obviously you have the biggest turnover, and that must be Costco. Costco, until recently, was not was actually not in the business of perishable products. They actually moved. They recently added it, but for a long time they didn't ah. want to have it. Yeah, just an additional note. Yeah, they moved like a logic. lot of very shelf stable stuff, but also shitloads of TVs and you know, yes, all that yeah, stuff. Yeah. I, I think I w- I'm with Franz. I would assume Costco just because mm-hmm. their lines change so often. It Everyone knows that you might only get that product for a short space of time, um, maybe not in the foodstuffs piece. So I'd have Costco as mm-hmm. the biggest turnover. If now I'm hearing that it's not that um, perishable, then I would maybe even put Lululemon first because fast fashion. I mean, not so fast in other fashions, but still... Fashion is short-lived, so I guess mm-hmm. that turns also right qu- really quickly. But I'm just, yeah. It, to me, it's just points towards Muji is the, uh, doing the worst. If so, it's not turning as fast. I don't know about Costco and Lululemon now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I also phrased it in a way. I framed it in a way that <laughs> it was easy to guess that Muji is the worst, which it is. Actually, um, the the surprise here is Costco, which is number one, uh, which has an inventory turnover of twelve, more than twelve. What does that mean? And the so reason it's this is twelve times in a year. Is that what you mean? I'm trying to go exactly there because it's super, super fascinating. So what it means that actually. It's they actually succeed in selling everything they put into their stores in less than a month because they have above 12 inventory turnover. And what usually happens is if you have your own suppliers, you need to pay them in 30 days. And this means on average, Costco needs uh, Costco needs 28 days to sell something off of their shelves, which means they don't need any outside financing because the suppliers are financing them um, because they don't need to pay them until the customer pays them, which is unbelievable uh, for one reason, which is growth, but I'll get to this. Uh, Lululemon has an inventory turnover of four, just as a comparison, Zara has roughly seven uh, because it's just more in a fast fashion business. And Muji has an inventory turnover of only 2.22. 
That's pretty bad. Especially if you're in business. I mean, it's not bad in itself, but it is a problematic if your whole strategy relies on opening new stores because you need a very long time to actually repay the stock, the inventory you have in the store. So that's why it's problematic. So whenever you have a store, you really want to have a look at this inventory turnover KPI and understand this and combine this with how the company is trying to grow. Is it opening a lot of stores? Is it uh, Because if it's franchising, then it's not such a big issue. But if it's opening your own stores, then it is an issue because you need your own money to open those stores and finance the stock or inventory within those uh, um, yeah, store stores. That's interesting. That is new one to me, new KPI. Super interesting. Definitely going to be uh, adding that into the research moving forward. Um, is that just a, is that a side effect of having seven thousand very diverse products as well? Like you're just not gonna be. I don't know. It is a bit of a smorgasbord of stuff when you go into these stores. It's hard, kind of, not to know where to start. Um, yeah, it's a great question. But let's compare Muji to IKEA. I think this would be like the. I was waiting for that. Yeah. <laughs> Because, <laughs> I mean, if you want to have low prices, then you're going to let your suppliers produce in bulk. If your product is stationary, obviously, again, that speaks for bulk production. So I, I'm still doubtful whether this is an actual bad number, because maybe it's just what how this kind of a business works. As we said, perishable, product, perishable products will have, by nature, a different turnover than um, notebooks. Exactly. But I'm curious about IKEA now. Yes. Okay. So IKEA has much fewer stores. It has 450, according to Statista. Uh, it has 9,500 products. So it has more products, fewer stores. And their um, inventory turnover is 3.5, which means it takes them roughly 105 days to sell a product. So it means Muji is like stretched thinner much thinner than ikea is two point something right from uji 2.2 versus mm -hmm. 3.5 2.2 is basically means you need almost like 150 60 days to sell a product off your shelf from purchase to not only from is it only shelf or is it purchase like you purchases it get it's in your ownership and then it's in uh, your it's warehouse yeah, it's okay. from warehouse to selling mm. warehouse or in store mm. Yeah, that's interesting. And problematic. <laughs> yeah. Do we think that number I mean, would the, go the, down if they weren't so diverse in the number of products they sell? Is there is there an inverse relationship there normally? It depends, again, on the type of product. It depends on uh, what kind of business you're running inventory-wise. It depends on a lot of different things. Mm. So it's hard to say. Um, but yes, there is it, there is definitely connection with the type of product you're selling and the amount of products you're selling. Because if you sell fewer products, you can optimize for that. But maybe they're stuck in the middle again because they have these products that sell really well, but it takes them a long time to sell. So obviously from just the public information that we can acquire, it's hard to see the full story. But just seeing this number and understanding their strategy, which is retail um, presence, it is uh, not the best, uh, not the best combination, in my opinion. Interesting. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. Damn. I do, I do, I would love to know. I'm pretty sure there are conversations that happen uh, at Muji that we could up the price of this product. We could simplify and not maybe cover all the bases for someone's life to make it simpler and nicer in some way. But I do wonder if they're just sticking to their guns. Like you could definitely add 25, 30% to the cost of a lot of their products, I think, given the quality of design. Um, and yeah, they probably could cut out a, a whole bunch of products, but I don't know. I wonder if it's just the ethos and stick it, sticking maybe blindly, maybe unadvisedly to that, that is contributing maybe to these quite lean numbers. Yeah, only they know at this stage. I couldn't find anything about it in the annual reports. Yeah. But see, we're having profit of 220 uh, million. 222 million US dollars. And that's the pitfall that also we need to be aware of, right? So there is always companies with different revenues, different profit margins, different gross margins. In the end, it needs to be a profitable company, right? Yes. Not every company can have ESOP 94% profit margin. Not everybody <laughs> can have 84, 80% software as a service um, profit margins. There need to be companies with profit margins of 7%. And if they're still making yes. 222 million and are living for 45 years, 43 years, and hopefully continue to live that way and keep their, let's say, still strategic, uh, unique position, that's all fine. Totally. No, I agree with this. It's just like they show the, they show the, they want to grow, you know? And when, yeah. when if you want to grow this type of business, it is problematic with this approach. But I agree that it is a long lasting company. It's been profitable. So I have in front of me 11 year summary of their uh, financials and they've been profitable every single year, even during COVID, which is impressive to say the least. So it is stable, profitable company. My point is just that it's hard to grow with that yeah. combination of strategy and business model. Totally, yeah. But fair play, Muji, keeping it profitable for all, all those periods. <laughs> the thing that I did see, and again, it, I guess it's a challenge for growth, is that they will only if open a store or go into a new market once they have gone absolutely down on their homework as far as um, store profitability, cost, availability of resources, making sure absolutely every box is ticked. So although, you know, 7% very lean profit margin, you might think, Christ, that could really be at risk, you know, if they make a bad move. Um, they don't tend to make any bad moves, even though their growth is slow they generally move into the right areas having done an enormous amount of homework so they they can pretty much it sounds like on the whole guarantee they're gonna they're gonna make those numbers mm -hmm. um there's yeah. been a few dips um fran's already covered some of those but maybe that's made True. them even more vigilant but let's have a look into the future threats and opportunities um so any volunteers or i mean i can also go first but i think Franz, you have this smile on your face as if you want to go into, I guess, threats or opportunities or both? No, I mean, I can, yeah. Okay. Um, I think the threats are bound very much to the business model and the industry. Like, it's the supply chain. If you're not, I mean, even if you produce yourself, 
you have supply chain issues, but especially when you don't produce yourself, then they're even bigger. Um, then what you just uh, shared, the high cost of the brick and mortar stores um, versus online sales. Uh, I mean, they are very strong online. Uh, they are also very strong with a, um, I found very interesting app model. It's called the Passport. Not going to go too deep into it, but uh, it feels like they were very early in the game um, and are using this very smartly, but still most of their sales are based on brick and mortar. Uh, question, Alan, have you found online versus offline sales? No. Okay. I was interested in that, but... Did you? Um, I didn't. No, I didn't. I just found their online store good, proper, um, but still with so many shops. I got it. Um, mm -hmm. 10%. Online? Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, that's a risk. <laughs> I mean, it's an opportunity, <laughs> um, but at the same time, I mean, it's a low number, so it's an opportunity, uh, but it's at the same time also a risk if you are so much dependent on brick and mortar stores with this cost structure and inventory turnover. Um, lastly, yeah, growth versus internationalization. So we have heard from you that their international sales are decent, but uh, when it comes to the borders of Asia, they're not as good. So that's definitely on the one hand, an opportunity, but at the same time, also a threat if you're not like, yeah, it's heavy lifting. If you have a very specific story and strategy, um, how aggressive can you go into a new market? How much do you have to adjust and how much do you have to localize? But how much are you allowed to localize to not use this uh, unique um, position? So I think this is also a very tricky situation for them. Obviously, there is a huge potential to grow outside of Asia, but at the same time, it seems very hard for them to actually materialize on that because it's, yeah, very narrow story. If you change, it's no story at all anymore. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so all of this is kind of threats, more threats, but I would say also an, op an opportunity. Um, biggest opportunity, in my opinion, is... Um, again, internationalization, because I think this just enough Spartan luxury is about to become the new luxury. So I think if they can stick to their guns and if they can tell the story also, especially in Europe, I think there is a market for this just enough simple approach that is bigger than 5% of their whole revenue, US and Europe combined. Mm. Interesting. I think you've tapped into one of the things that I think has been is is an opportunity, but also has been a threat to them for a long time. Is this absolute commitment to this sort of Japanese aesthetic and ethos? And we're very fashion led in the West, and it just hasn't the visual, particularly in homewares and fashion, has just not been it for for a little while now. I think there was a moment ten years ago when. Um, Japandi was Japonica, that kind of look was far more. Was that in. 10 years ago? I thought that's it now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think, I think in, I'm only talking in the UK at least, like it's been very sort of, it's gone from Scandinavian stuff to like maximalist look and, look and feel, I think. 
personally in homewares for for the last 10 years um and i think we are more way more susceptible to cycles whereas in their home market it's just it's that is an aesthetic that's been around for hundreds of years and they are just like a more accessible um high street um version of of something that is so uniquely tied to the culture so i just think they're going to probably be quite cyclical if they move into mm. into the west so that's an opportunity when that arises again but it's also a threat when that's not in fashion and they are so sticking to their guns as far as their ethos and their aesthetic that i'm not sure it's always going to hit the right notes in the west um from a design perspective i think the threat that they've already had to deal with um particularly in the far east is counterfeits they they've had like mood people open like pretty much copycat muji stores in china and have had to like take them to court um to get them shut down so i think that's been, been a and big they lost. issue they've lost yeah i think they crazy, lost a lot yeah 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 lost the lawsuit and now there's even more like knockoff brand totally so yeah with anything um sort of consumer high street level there's always the risk of counterfeit but there's also the risk of new market entrants that kind of do the same thing slightly differently i think um tiger tiger are an example i think of a brand that is you know quite high on design um or flying tiger i think in some territories it's called but again very very affordable but people really have this kind of cult like relationship with with the brand um that is kind of similar to what you see with Muji so just another take on that sort of homewares lifestyle big product range low cost but maybe with a flavor that kind of sits better in the west um so yeah for me those are the kind of uh, mostly threats i would say um <laughs> i think i think i really admire them to stay true to their brand roots and i think that would be the biggest threat if they decided to try and grow in other areas and sort of started to dilute that in some way i think it would lose a lot of its cult like appeal um and maybe be short termist but uh final bit is on the digital piece i think the website and certainly the uk one is not a great online experience personally um the passport app is really interesting and you said it's only 10% of revenue i think a big part of that is they've historically had this strategy of it being a driver for in-store um engagement but that's certainly there is untapped potential there to do more more online but i was looking at the uk website i was like damn this this needs yeah user experience and the quality and even the simplicity it doesn't really for me reflect the store experience terribly well so yeah more threats and opportunities on my on my plate yeah we seem to be all more heavily skewed towards the threats same on my side so i think the fact that china is one of their fastest growing markets at the same time um they just lost the lawsuit against the knockoff uh brands is very very problematic to say the least um so if you count on china to be your growth engine and you i mean it's also politically not as stable as some of the other um uh, western economies um in terms of the 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 laws and so on so yeah it that is a huge risk 
Also, apparel sales look very shaky. So in 2020, they sold 187 billion. So let's say 190 billion yen of apparel. And in 2021, they sold only 170 uh, billion. And now they're trying to kind of recover. So they had 180 billion in 2022, but it seems to be like the apparel is going down for them and trying to solve it, but it's not really their growth uh lever and as we said before apparel is 40 percent of their revenue so maybe it's also the aesthetic of the apparel that is not um you know most modern or whatever so this is another risk so this huge category of the revenue not performing as well um and for me, the biggest opportunity is online sales. So it's only 10% at the moment, and their plan for 2030 is to, for it to be 30%. So if they can pull off this uh, full pull off this new distribution channel, this could take off the pressure from what we discussed before with the sales. Sorry, with the growth through opening retail stores uh, and um, needing to open new stores to grow. Uh, so that is definitely the, the biggest opportunity that they have. But I think they also need to find find a way to unlock this Western market. Um, just don't know how. It's definitely a big opportunity. And I think their non-branding approach is kind of hindering them here. And it's something that they need to figure out. And if they do, then they have a huge, huge opportunity to also double uh, and grow their presence in these markets. So if I would have to draw the line and say buy, sell, hold, by the way, it's a public company, so you can actually buy stocks. So we do have to say that this is not an investment advice. Everything we have talked about until now is just for entertainment and educational purposes only. And also my, this is just a game. And uh, in, this, in this fashion, uh, my answer to buy, sell, hold would be, to hold. I don't think it's a, it's a great business that would be buying heavily into. I don't think it's a bad business that you would need to sell the stocks. But if you can see there is longevity there with uh, their like 40-year um, history and they seem to know how to, to run this business. And there's enough of upside um, to actually hold and just see how things develop because also currently the stock price is maybe even undervalued compared to some of their peers. So yeah, my decision would be to halt. Oh, yeah, that's uh, going to be unanimous, I think. <laughs> I would, I would be holding. Yeah. I, I think I was going to yeah. say the same. Like This isn't going to give you some fucking 10x in the next five years, but safe pair of hands. It seems like they've been profitable for the longest time. You'd probably get a tidy little dividend each year. And you could probably be quite proud to hold some of their stock, I think, you shouldn't maybe always bring your personal kind of element to making choices like this, but I can get behind them. Emotional investment. Yeah, not, not sensible <laughs> investing, ever. but, you know, <laughs> a nice bonus. Yeah. Yeah. How about you, Franz? So same. holding Muji, same yeah. for you, Franz, right? Definitely. But I, I might be buying stuff. I'll buy uh, stock. be buying products actual stock <laughs> actual stock <laughs> <laughs> nice, I'd love nice. to know what people's favourite Muji products are 
um, in the, yeah. in the comments because you know like doing a bit of stuff on YouTube people do like these halls where they go to buy a load of stuff and there's this real cult like kind of thing around them especially when they launch new stuff um, tell us about some of those hidden gems that maybe we don't know about and uh, so that friends can go buy them all <laughs> exactly <laughs> Cool. So that's it in this episode. If you enjoyed it and if you'd like to learn more about business topics uh, relevant for designers, you can head over to d.mba slash mini MBA. So that is d.mba slash mini MBA. And there you can sign up for our seven day mini MBA. So it's a free email course. And uh, in seven days, you receive seven emails, each of them teaching you one business concept relevant for designers. Um, and it's a nice little um simple thing you can do to you know gain more business confidence apart from listening to these episodes of course cool thank you tom thank you france see you in the next one thank you thanks everyone bye bye, -bye.